Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that it is true. The king of glory became the king of shame. Our shame was nailed to him. And we thank you that you've loosened the bars of death. We're raised, raised for our justification. Thank you for the same spirit that is at work in our hearts now, giving life to our mortal bodies. And we pray that, Lord, we might experience this walking with your spirit, experiencing life in peace. Teach us how to love. Open wide our hearts now. Speak to us through the living and active word of God that pierces through soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judging thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Have your way among us and accomplish your sovereign purposes here. Give life, we pray, to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is God's word, not our words. Um, There's a lot here. This is the last message we're going to look at with love this morning. It was interesting reading different sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 and how different people have interpreted it different ways. This last part, um, I was reading a Jonathan Edwards sermon and a Spurgeon sermon and a... um, uh, Whitfield sermon, and Whitfield used this to talk all about money and charity, and, and it was about money. And you read about Spurgeon, and he talks about how, how it's basically talking of this is about our conversion, how it's all vertical, our love for Christ, and love always trusts and hopes. And, and then you read about Edwards, and it's how the, the Father, or Jesus, always obeyed the Father, and he showed love and love towards the Father and love towards us. I'm thinking, all those are great. Those are really all good. But the main point is a horizontal, how do we love each other? The people in Corinth were doing a really stinky job of loving each other. There was some pretty big church conflict, what we would call schism. And so when you take this in the macro, kind of, you know, we've been really into the micro, looking at each little word of this text, but back it up for a minute, okay? Where there are prophecies... They will cease, he goes on to say. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. When when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is Paul saying? He's saying, unlike the gifts that you guys keep exalting, that I have this gift and aren't I special, he's saying, you're being a pouty, arrogant kid, speaking like a child, talking like a child, and acting like a child, if that's what you're doing. 
because prophecy will cease. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will cease. Unlike the other gifts, love never ends. Heaven is a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards preached in his famous sermon, Ending Charity and Its Fruits, its book, and he's driving it from this text. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is getting at, is there is something permanent. There is something to look forward to. When you get to heaven, there won't be any faith anymore and there won't be any hope anymore because they'll be realized. You will see him face to face and you will be fully known and accepted and loved. And so love is what is permanent. And he's saying if that's what's permanent in heaven and you want his will to be done in heaven as it, on earth as it is in heaven, then we should be praying for this permanence of love. How do we love each other when we disagree so radically right now as a country and as a culture? Even we on, on a political, how do I love the person that's going to vote differently than me? It might be a family member. It might be your children. It might be your parents. We're really divided, and I'm more concerned of how well are we going to love each other? Because, boy, there is like fuel ready to ignite right now. I commend you to read John Newton's, uh, it's just called On Controversy. You should read it before you post anything on Facebook. Make any comments. Read that three times. Best thing I've ever read on how to love somebody. And it's on controversy. He talks about how things just, they tend to bring out the worst. And it's such a loving response to a guy he knows is going to win the argument. And he's concerned with tears that he's going to weep over his conquest. Because he's going to destroy who he is as a Christian and winning this victory. I wish we had that kind of humility when we would post stuff or when I read other people's replies to post. I, I am scared of Facebook because I have a lot of unbelieving friends and I'm, sometimes I'm afraid, how are my Christian friends going to reply to my posts? I'm serious. That's often why I don't post stuff because I'm like, people forget that there's lots of people that disagree with you. They're going to be reading this. So how can I be as winsome as possible with that, whatever I write? All right, that's enough about that subject. So what Paul is getting at here is he's, in this church, there were people that were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I am for this particular party, I'm for this particular party, and I got this gift, and aren't I special? You know, I can speak in tongues, and I'm over here, and I can sing the solos, and I can do this, and aren't I special? And he's saying, if you're using your gift for that purpose, then what you're really saying is what? Look at me. Look at me. Aren't I special? And that's what Paul is saying. That's not what love is. And so he's showing the permanence of love. And so when you think about the prodigal son coming home, there's so many categories to put that story in. But when you think about the prodigal coming home, have you ever thought about that in the category of heaven? Think about that story now in light of heaven. What are you looking forward to 
Now I know in part, now I see in part. I'll see him face to face, be fully known and fully loved and embraced and accepted that this is a much more than forgiveness story. When you read that prodigal story, it's all about shame gone and shame is being taken away and dignity restored. Shoes on his feet, ring on his finger, coat for him and kill the fatted calf. We gotta have a lavish party. This is a picture of heaven of the father running and embracing his children because the father actually doesn't just love us, he likes us. And he delights in us, rejoices over us with singing, has called us his sons, and as Jesus said, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. And the father said about the son, this is my beloved son, twice audibly says that down from heaven, so we know that that's how Jesus loves us with that kind of declaratory beloved son and daughter. Even if you don't feel like it, you don't feel like, boy, you know, our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. This is truth if you're in Christ. So I just wanna remind you of hope this morning because that's where we're going. And that's the engine that's gonna fuel love. Edwards in his sermon, which uh, uh, heaven is a world of love, he says this, there in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three in one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, and rivers of love and delight. And these rivers, these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, were deluged with love. Is that how you think of heaven? That's how Edwards thought of it. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, said in his commentary on the Beatitudes, this sight of God will be a satisfying sight. Cast three worlds into the heart and they will not fill it, but the sight of God satisfied. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness, Psalm 17, 15. Solomon says the eye is not satisfied with seeing in Ecclesiastes 1, but there the eye will be satisfied with seeing. God and nothing but God can satisfy. The saints have their heads so full of knowledge and their hearts so full of joy that there shall be no one want. The more the saints behold God, the more they will be ravished with desire and delight. Heaven is a world of love. Piper puts it like this, John Piper, if the thought of unending life for trillions and trillions of years is oppressive to you because of the threat of boredom, remember this, though it it is not fully comprehensible to us, an infinite God is infinitely inexhaustible in the treasures of power, wisdom, and love, and beauty, which we can spend an eternity discovering and applying, enjoying and applying to daily life in the new earth. We're never gonna sit down like Alexander the Great and weep that there were no more worlds to conquer. Our joyous quest to attain the heights of God's wisdom and love will never be ended. He says, when after a million years we pull ourselves with unspeakable exhilaration over the massive peak of some glorious divine truth, we'll be utterly astonished to find ourselves now not at the top, but merely in the foothills. And before us, as far as the eye can see, mountains and valleys and forest and height and light that we could have never imagined. There will be no boredom in the age to come because God is inexhaustible. 
He says, oh, to be there and not in hell. You see, the first five seconds of heaven, and think about this, a few of you that have had loved ones to go to be with the Lord this week. The first five seconds in heaven will be greater than all the joys of this life combined. Ken Hughes put it like this, in that split second of recognition, believers will experience more joy than the sum total of accumulated joys of a long life. They will behold the dazzling blaze of his being that has been and always will be the abiding fascination of angels. And the angels aren't bored. Scripture and reason demand that we understand that it will be the greatest event of our eternal existence, the visio dei, the vision of God. We need to believe it. Randy Alcorn put it like this in his book on heaven. He says, I've never been to heaven, yet I miss it. Eden's in my blood. The best things of life are souvenirs from, from Eden, appetizers of the new earth. There's just enough of them to keep us going, but never enough to make us satisfied with the world as it is or ourselves as we are. We live between Eden and the new earth, pulled toward what we once were and what, yet, what we will yet be. As Christians, we're linked to heaven in ways too deep to comprehend. Somehow, according to Ephesians 2.6, we're already seated with Christ in heaven. So love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. We persevere in love because we have this future hope. If we didn't have that, we would be thinking, this is a cave and I can't get out. It's not a cave, it's a tunnel that we are going through and Jesus has already broken through when he rose up from the grave on the third day. And so now... Second Peter says, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since we're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And the good news is, is we love. Hebrews 6.10 says that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Love is patient. And then I put a quote on Facebook this morning, which I rarely do, um, but I, I love this season of the year as the leaves are coming down and I just, that C.S. Lewis quote of the rustling of the leaves of the New Testament, my favorite sermon, The Weight of Glory, says at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Amen? So love always trusts, always hopes. Have you ever been around a really pessimistic person? I mean, they are always chicken little. The sky is always falling. Pessimistic about politics, pessimistic about the things they see on the news, but where the pessimism is most dangerous and most toxic is when it invades your view on those closest to you. Pessimism, I will contend with you, is a subtle form of arrogance. 
that refuses to see reality for what it is. We see what reality is where it's going. We see it's not a cave, it's a tunnel. We see what we're looking forward to. And Ecclesiastes, this is Solomon writing about wisdom. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. And say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. You'd be in the category of a fool to be talking that way. So what pessimism really does is it does damage, particularly when we're pessimistic about our loved ones. Love always hopes, love always believes. I've met parents who their natural assumption is that their children were lost. And they've interpreted all signs of spiritual life with pessimism. I've counseled married couples, and, and often when a, when a married couple breaks up in divorce, they often are each convinced that the other one's not a believer. Why is that? Because they've started down this negative train and the negative lies of thinking, and they have a pessimistic lens. You always, you never. Love always hopes, love always believes. You never, you always. And it just starts to circle downward till you start to read into things, read into in motives, interpreta- or interpretations of things. And I would think, I, I think it's very unhealthy and bad for the health of relationships. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. In the church, they're thinking bad about each other, and they're not hoping and believing and loving. The elder brother's spirit in that story, the prodigal son comes home, there's music, there's dancing. He hears the music, hears the dancing, and here, it's a scary thing. If you're wondering whether you're a pessimistic person, one of the ways that you know is that you hate parties. You hate them. I hear music, you can't go in. Somebody's doing something wrong. I mean, you gotta be suspicious. There's gotta be something wrong here. Probably, people are probably doing something they shouldn't be doing. And the elder brother is a suspicious squeal, sulking in self-pity, and he can't enjoy the party. If you can't enjoy a party, you gotta ask yourself a deeper question, why not? Why not? Jesus was always the life of the party. I've shared before that the, the scene where the Bart Simpson episode where Flanders, uh, Homer comes over, he knocks on the door, and he's very upset that Flanders has called the police. And Homer bangs on the door, and he says, why'd you call the police? And Flanders said, well, I heard lots of noise, and I'm a Christian, and I assume the worst, and I call the police. And Bart Simpson and these people that create this are trying to show you this is how Christians naturally, their MO of thinking, think the worst, call the police. Any Bob Dylan fans here this morning? The best way, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner recently. The best way to truly enjoy Bob Dylan is to enjoy the incredible lyrical genius, but let others sing his songs and to really appreciate them. (laughs) 
That's what I like the most. But I'm going to give you the quotes from one of my favorite songs by him. It's called I Believe in You. And he's major stuck on the E chord. It's a great one to learn if you're learning how to play because that's pretty much the song is the E chord. But anyhow, he's, this is a great song about what love looks like. I believe in you. They ask me how I feel and if my love is real and how I know I'll make it through. And they, they look at me and frown. They like to drive me from this town. They don't want me around because I believe in you. They show me to the door. They say, come back here no more because I don't be like they'd like me to be. And I walk out on my own a thousand miles from home, but I don't feel alone because I believe in you. I believe in you even through the tears and the laughter. I believe in you even though we be apart. I believe in you even on the morning after. Oh, when the dawn is nearing. Oh, when the night is disappearing. Oh, this feeling is still here in my heart. Don't let me drift too far. Keep me where you are, where I always be renewed. And that which you've given me today is worth more than I can pay. And no matter what they say, I believe in you. I believe in you when the winter time turns to summer. I believe in you when white turns to black. I believe in you even though I be outnumbered. Oh, that the earth may shake me. Oh, that my friends forsake me. And oh, that couldn't make me go back. Don't let me change my heart. Keep me set apart from all the plans they do pursue. And I don't mind the pain. Don't mind the driving rain. I know I'll sustain because I believe in you. He strikes a nerve in that song because we want to be loved like that. And we want to love somebody like that. Have you ever been loved like that? Have you ever loved somebody like that? This is how Jesus loves us. This is how God loves us. He says he rejoices over us now with singing. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so does our heavenly father rejoice over us. We're his children. Brett Favre, in his Hall of Fame speech, inducted in the Hall of Fame, he, at one point in the, in the speech, he gets choked up because his dad had died before he had been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, Brett Favre, I don't think he's a Christian, and I don't even know if his dad's a Christian, but here's the point. His dad was his high school football coach, and he talked about the, that, you know, as his dad was a coach, he was always the last one to go home. And after the season was over, his last game had been played. He's a senior in high school. And apparently, he did, it didn't go so well. And so he hears his dad talking to the other coaches, and he doesn't know his son can hear him. And he says he overhears his dad talking about him and the other coaches on the team. And this is what his dad said about him. I can assure you, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son he has it in him. And he said he spent the rest of his career living up to that, trying to live up to that because he knew that his dad had confidence in him and it gave him the confidence that he needed. So I want to say to the parents this morning that we need to use the hard times to communicate love and confidence in our children. I can remember one of the worst things, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid and I started driving, I wrecked my dad's truck. And I, I hit it, I mean, I messed with a telephone pole and the telephone pole won, okay? And the whole side of this truck was really messed up. When I came home and I, I went downstairs and I told my mom and my brother, 
I wrecked the truck. They didn't believe me. They laughed at me because they knew I was always such a tease and a prank. And I'm like, no, no, I wrecked the truck. I mean, I knew it was bad when I went around to look at it. And the trim work was off the back end about this far where I had, you know, messed the thing up. So my dad came home and he, he was, you know, he would say I'm calm, cool, and collective. And that's when he would lose it. You know, he'd say I'm supposed to stay. So I knew he was going to be angry. But actually, he didn't get angry. I can still remember this day. He hugged me, and he told me, it's going to be okay, and we're going to get through this. And that just gave me, like, I still remember that, because here was, like, a prime opportunity where he could have just lost it. And I think, as we think about what does love look like, love believes all things, hopes all things. Are you praying that way? Do you pray that about your spouse? Do you pray that about your children? Believing the best, hoping the best, expecting the best. And we have to get rid of all the negativity kind of thinking that really poisons a relationship. So this idea of love even goes deeper. And, it, and it's interesting how the ESV says love bears all things. And the, and the NIV, which I'm preaching from, says love always protects. That's a pretty big difference. Love bears all things or love always protects? I mean, that's a pretty radical. Dis- uh, so here's, here's what, uh, and trying to dig this down, the different lexicons of this Greek word stego, it, it means both. It means to put up with. It means to endure. It means to protect and keep by covering. Put a lid on it, keep it quiet. It means to put a roof on it. It's literally what it means. Put a roof on it. It means to cover something. It means to forbear. It means to endure. It means to cover closely. It means to keep water out. And so the the verb means both to put a roof on it, to cover it, but it also has this sense that you're to bear with and endure hardship or being when you're sinned against and hurt. So love protects and bears with. And so I was thinking in particular about this idea that love always protects Love always protects. And I was just running through the grid of Genesis. And Genesis is just this great book of like family relationships. And just think about that one, those three words, love always protects. And where you see it good and bad in Genesis. The story begins with Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam has a chance to protect his wife from this intruder, the devil. And the devil goes back door, instead of going to the head of the home, the devil goes back door through the woman and deceives her. She eats, and then it says she handed some to Adam, who was right there with her. All of a sudden, he's intruded into the story, and we see that Adam did not cover, he did not protect, he fails. And then not only does he fail, when God approaches and confronts him, what does he say? Uh, The woman you gave me. You know, it was your fault, God, and throws God under the bus as well as his wife. And, but who does God come looking for? He says, where are you, Adam? He doesn't come looking for Eve. God comes down looking for Adam because he's the head, and he is not protecting his wife. That's how the story begins. Not great. Then we get to the story of Noah. And you remember the story of Noah's sons, and when Noah... Uh, comes out of the ark, he 
he start, does well at first, but then he gets drunk. And in his drunkenness, he's uncovered, he's naked. And Ham comes in and sees him and goes and tells the other brothers. And what do they do? They walk him backwards and they cover him because love always protects. Cursed be Ham, blessed be the other two sons. And so the story goes from there. Then we see Abraham. And Abraham, love always protects his nephew has been snatched and, and taken away by these other raiders and foreign kings. And all of a sudden, Abraham turns into Aragorn and he mounts up 318 men in Aragorn and like it's a scene right out of Lord of the Rings and he goes and rescues Lot and his wife and, and rescues him. Amazing, because love always protects. Yet with his own wife, what does Abraham say? hey, you know, people are going to see how beautiful you are. And when we get around these other kings and stuff, I want you to just, just say you're my sister because it'll go well for me. Really? So when he says, you're my sister, say you're my sister, when she says, That's, you know, I'm the sister, now she's completely vulnerable and both times... She's going to be taken, and God has to protect her because Abram, Abram's only concerned about himself. He's, love always protects. He's not protecting. The sin gets passed on to Isaac. What does Isaac say to his wife? Say, you're my sister. It's the same sin. Jacob comes along, and Jacob fails to protect his whole family so Badly that when he hears your brother Esau is coming and he has 400 men with him. So what, what, is the, what does the man do? He divides from the least important to him to the most important and will put the least important first. And then we'll go with all Leah and all of her children. Then we'll, then we'll go with Rachel and her children. And then I'll put myself across the river. I'll be last. I'll save myself. He has everybody out over the river to face Esau in order of proximity of importance to himself, and yet he's, he's hidden across the river. And he wrestles with God all night long, and God meets him, changes his name, and now he goes out and actually faces his brother. Love always protects. Now he's protecting his brother because he's encountered someone much scarier than Esau ever was. He's encountered Jesus and wrestled with Jesus all night. And now he's a changed man. So then we see Joseph. Joseph comes along and he's having these dreams, he's a young guy, and, he, and he's telling his brothers about his dreams, and he has this coat of many colors that they give him, and boy, how does that go over with his brothers when they find him in the field, when he comes to see them, check on how they're doing? They, they don't protect him. They hate him. They envied him. They took him. They threw him in a pit, and then they see a caravan going down to Egypt, and so they sell him as a slave for silver, loved Love always protects, but these, these brothers, they're done with their brother. They go home and tell their dad he's been eaten by a ferocious animal. Here's the blood of the coat. What's happened? And so the story moves next. As the story starts to unfold, Judah is going to come out as the shining hero of the book of Genesis. 
Because when they come to Joseph, as the brothers all come to him, the famine has gone on, and he, jo- Joseph finds out that there's another brother that isn't there who's his younger brother, Benjamin, and he says, don't even show your faces to me again unless your little brother is with you. You guys must be spies. And he sends them back, and when the food is gone, Jacob says, let's go get some more food, and they say, we can't do that unless Benjamin goes with us. And that's where Judah steps up to the plate, and Judah says, let me be surety. Basically, my life for his. I will give my life. Love always protects. I will protect you, Father, and I will bring your treasure back to you. My life for his. And so Judah goes as the surety, and he's protecting. He's going to lay his life down. And sure enough, Joseph, when he sees him, puts the silver cup in his sack and and sends out his men and says, somebody's stolen this cup. And sure enough, they find out that it's it's Benjamin's cup. And they tear their clothes, and they think, this is it. And I just commend you to read Genesis 44 because it's one of these most beautiful chapters in the Bible, one of the greatest speeches in the Bible of Judah pulling uh, Joseph aside and now you see what repentance looks like and you see what love always protects and he tells him all about his father and how his father's heart is bent up in the life of his child and his father just loves this child and please, please take me, take me but let him go. And Joseph sees the repentance of his brother, and he sends everybody out. And he's crying so loudly that the Egyptians hear him. And he's, I am Joseph. For the first time, he's speaking in their native tongue, and he yells out, I'm Joseph. And he reveals himself to his brothers, and it's this beautiful scene of reconciliation because love has protected. And he sees Judah as a changed man. And we know that Judah is the rising star. I mean, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And he leaves with the blessing, the big blessing at the end of the book because it's pointing us to Jesus because that's what Jesus does with us. You see, Jesus protected us. When Jesus is in the garden, he's praying. And then when they're getting ready to go, they come with the soldiers and they're, they're coming for Jesus. And John 18 says, when Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's the power of Jesus' word, this ego a me, I am. They fall back to the ground. So they asked him again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am that he is supplied. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Here's the significance of this. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So what's the point? Jesus knows that if these men are not let go at this time, that they would have fallen away but that the word of God will be fulfilled. Of those you gave me, I've lost none. So he's pleading on their behalf, let these men go, because he knows that their faith is not ready to handle the persecution. So when he says, pleads for them to let them go and they're let go, he loses none of whom the Father's given him, because love always protects. And so love protects us ultimately from God himself. God's wrath, which we all justly deserve, his displeasure, the pouring out of his anger. Do you remember when David said, 
when, he, when Nathan comes to him and rebukes him about this guy who had one little, one little uh, lamb and that lamb was stolen from him and, and David said, that man deserves to die. He's so angry, right? And the, that's the same imagery of what we all deserve. That's what God's wrath is. We're all the people that have t- taken the little lamb and that man deserves to die. The soul that sins shall die. We deserve the full wrath of God. And Jesus comes and he protects us from that wrath by enduring the wrath of God himself on a wooden cross between two thieves. You see, the Bible says that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you've been healed. You've now been healed by Jesus. We were once going astray. Now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls so that we would be protectors, that love would protect, that love would hope, that love would believe, and that love would endure because love never ends. That's what this world, that's what we're to be as agents of in this world as we're bringing his kingdom, which will be forever in the world to come. Have you experienced his protection over you? Are you covered by his blood? Have you been washed? Have you been forgiven? The way that you are forgiven and washed and covered is by crying out and asking him to be your Lord and Savior and to forgive you of your sins. If you've never done that, there there is a point where we cross over from death to life. It's not just some thing that's nebulous. There is a time where one has to give his heart and life to Jesus. If you've never done that, call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. And for those who are his children, we continue to rest in his loving arms and his protection over us and extending that protection to those that God has entrusted sphere of influence to. Let's be good love coverers, letting, not making other people's sins known, our foibles, or flaws, but covering them ourselves, taking the hit as Jesus did. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for your intrusion over our plans and over our selfishness. We ask that you would take over and that you would apply this, but we need to do a better job, but we need to change and repent, but we need to forgive. Lord, we cry out to you to forgive us where we have failed. We see the pattern in Genesis of just so much failing to protect and pray that you would Help us, Lord, to be uh, people who extend that protection and covering. Help us to see the battles that are around us. Help us to put them in perspective in light of your word and of your kingdom. May we not get caught up in foolish controversies and disputes and things that would lead to uh, hindering or hurting our witness. 
And we ask all this in the matchless and strong name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. All God's people said, amen.